Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I'm curious how you go from idea in, let's call it September, October, to announcing a billion dollars worth of credit, uh, of tax credit on their platform in less than a year. I mean, that's a huge leap. It's more than, I think, it's more than anybody else I've talked to, candidly. Yeah, no, and I think we're up to over $2 billion at this point, um, but there's no shortcuts, right? I mean, it's all about hard work. It is very much a year of intense business development. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. All right, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much, especially if you are new here. I want to welcome you in to the next Suncast conversation. You have invested here by clicking play. The only thing that you won't get back, and that's your time. We promise to take good care of it and invest in your career, your business, your future. And today's entrepreneur has quite a lot to share. Mr. Billy Lee is one of, I would consider one of the true OGs in the industry. One of the first employees at Sun Edison, now in his third venture, has been one of the global leaders in structuring project finance and tax equity for the industry, doing some of the earliest projects in the United States solar industry and possibly around the world. As I mentioned, is in his third venture and uh, identifying the optionality embedded in the IRA with tax transferability, tax credit transferability, really piqued Billy and his partner's interest. And today we're going to talk about why and how Reunion, the business that they've launched, is going to address exactly that. If you have been in the dark about how does all this tax equity and tax credits work, today's episode is for you, my friend. And I hope that you're subscribed to the podcast because we've got more than 625 additional episodes of founder stories and clean energy fr- advice from the front lines from leaders just like Billy over the last eight years, all at mysuncast.com, shared with you free of charge. It only costs your attention. Thank you for giving it to us today. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, there's a lot that I could say about today's guest, but I think, you know, in the intro, I said it best. You know, one of the first employees at Sun Edison legitimately put together the tax equity for some of the biggest and earliest deals, helped big entities like D.E. Shaw get into the space and figure it out. Billy Lee and the folks that he has worked with have formed the cornerstone, in my opinion, of how the industry's finance markets have uh, evolved. He's been instrumental in it. And I'm super happy for our mutual friend, Joe Song, uh, himself an icon in the industry, someone that everyone uh, knows and and respects, connecting us uh, so that we could have this conversation today. Billy, stoked to finally get a chance to have you on Suncast, man. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Billy, I'm going to kick it off with a quote. uh, And I think that this epitomizes not only the early folks in the solar industry, uh, but anyone who dares to change the way things operate. And it's by Seneca. And the quote is, it is not because things are difficult that we do not dare. It is because we do not dare that things are difficult. I love it. I love it. So having been a part of a company that many said was like 
absolutely daring, right? Uh, Sun Edison, you're, um, you have been able to watch the industry grow. You've been able to be instrumentally in tune with it and a part of it and actually like introduce new products and new ideas. Uh, I, I wonder before we jump into all of that, what, if any quotes come to mind for you, uh, that inspire you, uh, along in your daily journey? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, maybe two come to mind. One is, uh, the lucky, the luckiest people are the hardest working people. Mm-hmm. And the second is the best time to plant a fruit tree was mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And the second best time is, is today. And I think those two quotes are really, um, you know, uh, they're, they're, they mean a lot to me because one, uh, it reflects that, uh, hard work is kind of, uh, the primacy of hard work above anything else. You can't just rely on luck. Luck obviously helps a lot. Um, but you know, hard work is, um, uh, you know, is, is a determining factor of, of most people's success. And then secondly is just, let's not, look back. You know, I, I, I try not to look back ever. Um, and, um, you know, I always want to think about the future. Uh, I try not to make decisions on some costs. Um, and there's a certain urgency of doing things now, as opposed to, um, you know, thinking about what it could have, should have. So those two quotes are always something that always stuck with me. And, um, you know, I, that guide a lot of kind of how I operate. I really appreciate that. Embrace the urgency of now. Right. I am going to, I'm going to force you into then the uncomfortable situation where you must talk about the past today. <laughs> but we're going to talk about the past through the lens of what can we learn from it, um, which I think is the best form of evaluating the past. Uh, I concur with you, by the way, and something that in our twenties and thirties, we don't often embrace, uh, especially as high achievers type a, we tend to beat ourselves up over bad decisions or, uh, or missed turns or missed opportunities. And as I get older, as we get older, definitely embrace the urgency of now and the reality that there is no past. The past is literally gone. There's nothing we can do about it. No amount of, dis- of, uh, of cons- consternation will change it or bring it back. Uh, thanks for that. That's a really good grounding moment here. Uh, as we think about the future then and kick things off, Billy, help describe the problem at a, at a macro level that you've created reunion to solve. Basically in this country, we have typically incentivized our energy policy through tax credits, through the IRS code, as opposed to other countries, which have centralized energy markets, have centralized governments where they can just say, Hey, listen, I'm going to throw a feed in tariff that just pays, you know, a certain amount of cents for per kilowatt hour. Uh, in the U.S., for one reason or another, and I don't exactly know, but uh, we use tax credits. We use the IRS code. And the monetization of those tax credits that underpin our energy pol- policy objectives is very inefficient and really only available to a, a select group of people and a select group of projects. So what happens um, when we pair uh, tax credit incentives and um, and use that to fuel our energy policy. Uh, and, and this hasn't changed. I mean, the IRA, most of the incentives are in the form of tax credits. You know, what happens is there are what I would call a couple, you know, very massive unintended consequences. First is the necessity of tax equity. Um, and I'm sure everyone knows and or has everyone has heard that tax equity has an extremely high barrier to entry. It's co- complicated. 
it's expensive, it's time consuming, um, but no tax equity, no project. It's as simple as that. Um, secondly, because tax equity has been the most challenging aspect of development, we've seen a focus away from smaller distributed generation to larger utility scale projects. Um, like anyone, you know, the tax equity players want to maximize their profit per unit of human capital. And, you know, tax equity is largely a fixed cost transaction. So it doesn't scale linearly with the size of a transaction. What really has happened, and I've seen in the course of my career, is there's been a brain drain towards centralized gener- generation versus distributed generation. And, and a large part of that has been because that's what tax equity wants, right? Hey, listen, give me clean, easy, large projects. And I would argue that uh, this was really never the intent of our energy policy. Um, when you think about the landscape today, there's many, many orphan rooftops. You know, I think there was a study last year that said U.S. warehouses alone can host enough solar power for to power 20 million homes or something like that. So, you know, the energy transition can't be on the back of utility scale solar and wind alone. But um, that's where kind of we find ourselves today pre-IRA, right? Uh, a lot of focus on centralized generation when, you know, when you can argue, you know, distributed generation, generation close to or at the point of load is the most ideal form of generation. Yeah, sure, it costs a lot more to install, to build, to commission, but it's offsetting the highest cost of electricity. So that's at the heart, you know, the principal problem. And when the IRA came out, you know, we started going around and talking to people who have been doing project finance and tax equity for many years. And it was fascinating. Like, you know, people I've grown up with been doing this for 15 years and they only said, this is getting worse. It's getting harder and harder. It's getting more complicated as opposed to what you would typically think, hey, yeah, we've been doing this for 15 years. Like it's getting easier and easier. So that, you know, was clear when we started looking at this space. This is a massive problem that we, we, we can attack now. So historically, select few and really insider knowledge allowed the ability to get projects financed using this specific policy mechanism in the United States that's different from how others around the world have chosen to incentivize deployment of energy assets broadly. And this is not something that's unique to solar. It's just something that, thanks to Sanedison and others, we were able to bring over into the solar project finance mechanism. It's also really interesting uh, as a history lesson and note, uh, Sanedison didn't start out with the goal of building huge centralized plants, right? part of the thesis with it's the a, yeah i mean t- to my point about how you know there's been a brain drain towards from dg to centralized generation i remember the early days of sun edison we had vigorous debates about whether we should do utility scale projects like is this in our dna and when i think about that you know i kind of forgot about that until i started thinking about you know some this this call in this podcast i was like I remember we had really philosophical debates. Is that who we want to become? Now, looking back, obviously, it is what Sun Edison became, and DG became a very small sliver of their overall business. But I think that's just indicative of 
you know, the unintended consequence of yeah. tax policy. And the adage, you got to follow the money, right? But if you want to totally. get the projects done, you got to, you're beholden to what the folks who are going to allocate the capital want in the asset, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's a logical, it's a logical decision, right? If you are working at a bank, right, you can put your hours and do a five megawatt deal and deploy a little bit of capital, or you can do a 500 megawatt deal and deploy a lot of capital for pretty much the same amount of work, maybe a little bit more. So it's not exactly the same fixed cost, but it certainly does not scale the same way. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Post IRA, we have a mechanism that also caught your attention. So take a moment here then and in- introduce us to reunion infrastructure and why it's going to help solve the problem that you've enunciated, this lack of opportunity to access tax tax credits and tax equity heretofore and, and how things uh, look like they're going to change in a massive way. Yeah, absolutely. So just as a backstory, me and my partner were working together last year and um, you know we were looking at different business models. So Andy Moon, who's my co-founder, who I met at Sun Edison, um, you know, we had been talking and we had kind of been both at the same point where, hey, listen, we both want to dive back into entrepreneurship. We had both been founders previously. And we were looking at different ideas and we were focusing on commercial EVs, right? And we were, you know, and, you know, both of us had a very customer-centric focus in terms of like, let's define the problem. Let's look at, let's interview customers and and go down that uh, route to figure out what is a good business model. And and to be frank, we are we were we we're struggling a little bit, right? We had some really great ideas, but we got some kind of lackluster customer feedback. And that's a whole separate discussion. But in the context of that, the IRA passed. And uh, the IRA has a provision under section 6418 that says these tax credits, and there are 11 tax credit categories, can now be transferred to an unrelated third party. And this was revolutionary, right? Because um, in general, our tax code does not allow for the sale of tax credits. Tax equity is, you know, we spend so much time on tax equity creating partnerships. So it actually doesn't look like a sale. It looks like a a partnership where you're allocating- Like you're involved in exactly. the Exactly. You have to allocate uh, income and loss and, and, and in a way that, you know, that the tax equity partner has real substance. So they are really a project investor. And now the tax code all of a sudden overnight says, actually, you can sell these. So now when we looked at this, we dropped everything. We said, you know, this has our names written all over it. Number one, um, we know there is a problem. 
We've lived it. We've breathed it. Uh, number two, there's a massive opportunity. It's not just solar, wind, and now batteries and biogas, but it's 11 different categories, a lot of new technology, stuff that people aren't even talking about in general right now. So manufacturing tax credits, uh, hydrogen, um, CCS. Nobody talks about nuclear, but you know every nuclear uh, existing nuclear project, almost every of them, um, has a tax credit now that can be sold. So uh, these are there's a lot of credits coming down. So we saw the opportunity side, uh, but we still knew there was a problem. One, it's a completely brand new market. It's an easier mechanism to monetize than tax equity, but it's probably still not easy. There's a lot of still a lot of you know complexity. Um, but we set up Reunion to be a marketplace that really facilitates the purchase and sale of these credits. And our thesis was that the folks doing tax equity will continue to do tax equity. The folks doing buying tax credits are going to be companies from all walks of corporate America, right? And that's a big subset of entities out there. And there's a, a vast amount of education a vast amount of nurturing. There's a vast amount of getting people up to speed to create a paradigm in which they can transact easily and efficiently. I feel like we may need, again, a history lesson or maybe a clear, concise definition of the difference between tax equity and tax credit for the uninitiated. We we often take it for granted that we understand what these these different terms mean. But Reunion is built to address tax credit transferability rather than tax equity. So let's differentiate between those two and correct me if I'm wrong. Absolutely. So in the end, it's still a tax credit, right? So nothing has changed. A solar project, a wind project, a storage project generates a tax credit or a certain number of tax credits. The manner of which this can be monetized is what's changed. So in tax equity, what happens is a bank or insurance company enters into a partnership with a developer. And that partnership allocates the the majority of the tax equity and other tax benefits like depreciation to that tax equity partner. But to be very clear, they are joint venture partners, so to speak. They are investing in the project. Can I just pause for a second? I think the word equity often confuses people. Because what we're talking about is tax liability and the deference or offsetting of that tax liability by, intri- by investing in infrastructure that the U.S. government wants to see get built. That's right. So to be a tax equity investor, the requirement, the prerequisite is to have tax liability. Profit. <laughs> exactly. You need to be paying the IRS tax liability. So tax and what these credits do is just simple. You know, you get a dollar of tax credits, it reduces your, the dollar that you have to pay to the government. What tax equity does is just a currency. Your tax liability becomes a currency. It becomes equity in the project. That's right. And, and part of what they're investing is cash, right? So they put some cash in, and part of what they get is also a little bit of cash, but also they get the tax benefits from mainly tax credits, but also, you know, other tax benefits like depreciation. Up to now, like up to the IRA providing um, to a tax transferability or maybe even right now as, you know, I, I readily admit, I usually will have an entrepreneur who's like 
through product market fit, gotten to series B or more, like maybe even gone public. They've scaled the business. They've got clear customer buy-in. You have all of those things, but in an almost nascent market still, in, in a market where people still don't understand how this product works. So maybe you could define the landscape for the rest of us who aren't down in the weeds with you. What solutions exist today for developers who are looking at the IRA going, how do I actually know what to do now with, the, with, with regards to who can help me fund these projects? I think a lot of developers who didn't have tax equity or couldn't get it or the projects didn't work were developing projects and flipping them, right? Selling them to, you know, Brookfield or Nextera and those guys can take care of the tax equity, right? But, you know, the, there's been a deep desire for a lot of people to own and operate their own projects. Um, so I think the IRA gave them the, the runway, gave them the a blueprint to do that just that. To your point, it is a weird market or it's still a very early market where some of these developers have built projects or are in the state or in the early stages of building projects and they have tax credits to sell and they have generated them. But part of it is like, where do I go, right? Who do I sell to? And that is just the clear cut, the first problem that we're trying to solve, right? That we can help find buyers for that different, uh, for different projects. Um, so that is immediately kind of the, the number one problem on the developer side that we are trying to resolve and, and support the industry with. On the buyer side, right, we have a lot of taxpayers who have heard of transferability. Um, there's been a lot of our clients are taxpayers who have heard about tax equity, and tax equity is complicated for developers, but it's also complicated for investors, right? So we, as an industry, have been you know, beating the drum on corporate tax equity for 15 years and the number of corporates, right. not just banks, <laughs> it, but the number of corporates who actually pull the trigger, you know, you probably can count on, you know, two hands and two feet, right? It's, it's, it's not that many. And a lot of them sound like Fang. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't even know if those guys are doing it right. Um, yeah. But um, That's, you know, is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's, there's, there's just a handful of them. Right. And it's, but it's, it's folks who, you, there's a again a level a barrier entry to get in right. It's very complicated. It's not their core business. They have to enter into complicated partnerships. The accounting is you know has been the killer of court, corporate tax equity for many many years because the way the accounting shows up on these companies' books is sometimes weird and sometimes negative. And if you're a publicly traded company, you have accounting results that don't look great, you know, your natural instinct is, why are we doing this, right? Even if it provides a better return. Um, so a lot of those guys have sat in the sidelines and now are very interested in buying tax credits from renewable energy projects. But again, they don't have, you know, the breadth of, of uh, network that we do. So we can help connect them with developers who have credits uh, for sale. And so right now, um, it's a marketplace. So we help connect buyers and sellers. We help uh, the the parties transact. We help them, you know, because this is, this is, you know, the early deals will still be negotiated, will still be fairly bespoke. 
We help them with the transaction process, with the due diligence. So we are here really as a resource, as an education resource to both sides. But we, you know, we made a, we made a conscious decision early on not to be kind of a sell side or a buy side advisor. We are here to facilitate the transaction. You've been in this industry for a long time, long enough to see things that have been tried, like building platforms for tax equity. I've, I have as well. I've had numerous folks come to me and say, oh, we're building a platform that is going to help the buyers and the sellers. Most of the time they're talking about trying to match finance parties, not necessarily getting into the esoteric layer of tax in that stack because the finance side typically kind of works out the, the tax equity on their own. And that's kind of, and that's what makes it so complicated. It's a foregone conclusion now. Tax transferability is a part of the IRA. And that in and of itself, as you rightly mentioned, was a catalyst for you and Andy saying, wait a minute, let's pivot here our thinking and apply 20 plus years of experience to uh, and our, our portfolio of, of clients, our black book on solving this problem. But what else needed to be true? For this business to work, maybe I'll answer it. Uh, what you know more prospectively, um, you know what will need to be true, right? So I okay. think sure, I like that um, for sure. Like, hey, listen, we have a fragmented group of sellers, we have a fragmented group of buyers, we have a mechanism to transact. We are building um, technology and software in the background to assist in that pro- process. But in the end, we don't view ourselves as a software company. Uh, we view ourselves as a tech-enabled finance company, right? Right now, our core product is transferability. Um, but as we grow, um, there's a lot of financial innovation that goes on top of transferability. When you just think about, now you can sell credits from party A to party B. Sounds simple enough. But there's a once you kind of peel the onion, there's a lot of complexity, right? For lack of a better word, there still is complexity. It's not as complex as tax equity, but there's complexity and there is room for a lot of financial innovation. And you know, a lot of that we feel is our secret sauce, our IP. So I won't get into exactly what we're working on, but suffice to say that um, creating what we are trying to do is create a liquid marketplace, right? Have deep liquidity on the buy side from tax credit buyers uh, from, again, all walks of corporate America, large, medium, small, and have deep liquidity of credits from different technologies, sponsors, credit categories. Um, But in the end, what we are trying to do is create a deep market where you can differentiate on price, you can differentiate on risk, you can differentiate on complexity, and you can innovate around how you mitigate risk in each of those scenarios on how to create uh, uh, transactions that are more streamlined. And that's really ultimately where we find a lot of fascinating territory to grow into. So I missed the opportunity to have you on three, four months ago as you guys were still polishing the product that you wanted to show the world. Um, but since then, um, very recently, you all uh, announced that the marketplace is, we'll, we'll say, live and launched with more than a billion in transferable tax credits. Could you talk to me about the journey that you've been on with Andy 
of finding the early believers who wanted to trust you and why that was true. And then getting Segway, Joe and Dave to bring financing to bear for your business, your new business to help lift this marketplace out of the, out of the ether. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was a little, the sequence events was a little different, right? Because we identified the opportunity after the IRA passed. Again, me and Andy are very kind of disciplined in identifying the problem, talking to customers, and ensuring that we have a solution. So we did a lot of that work last fall. We talked to people who, or we want to ensure that this is a product that people would value, ensure that the problem still existed. You know, that problem largely is kind of the bottleneck of tax equity. And then talked about how we can create solutions. So we did that last fall. And then uh, we just- How long did that take? Just generally, how long did that process of evaluation take? We probably spent um, four to six weeks working okay, on that. It was fast, but- um, I mean, was it all hands on deck? Like all you're doing all, all hands day on is deck. making Zoom calls? All hands on deck. Yeah. But we had been used to that because we had been doing that in the commercial EV context for a couple months, right? So we just said, okay, hold on. This, has, uh, this transferability has our name written all over it. Let's do the same process that we developed for- uh, our commercial EV kind of thesis. And we did that. And like we had, you know, absolute conviction after four to six weeks, absolute conviction. Wow. That's amazing. Um, so then we decided let's just raise some money and mm-hmm. we had no product. We had, you know, nothing. We had an idea. Classic startup in Silicon Valley. <laughs> exactly. Right but we had absolute <laughs> conviction and we had the background where we knew we could do it. So we, you know, mm-hmm. we did the rounds and talked to some you know, close, uh, close uh, friends and investors. And I've known Joe and Dave for many years. And, uh, you know, we were mainly just, you know, shooting the shit with them. And w- because they're, they're, you know, a developer, uh, uh, sorry, a developer financing company, right? We didn't even think they, you know, did something they wouldn't back us. But, you know, Dave wrote a piece on transferability last year that got a lot of eyeballs. And um, so we, knew that they're, um, we share a cer- certain perspective on, uh, on a s- certain you know, thesis on how powerful transferability was. So at some point they were like, you know, guys, why are you running around uh, trying to raise this money? We'll, we'll just do it. And, uh, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, we got a, a deal done and uh, we closed the money right before uh, Christmas. And January 1, we were live and, and uh, hustling. Were there any early... Customers, whether uh, maybe you could talk about them if, if so, but like I'm curious how you go from idea in let's call it September, October to announcing a billion dollars worth of credit uh, of tax credit on a platform in less than a year. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge leap. It's more than uh, I think any, it's more than anybody else I've talked to candidly. Yeah, no, and I think we're up to over two billion at this point. Um, but there's no shortcuts, right? I mean, it's been, um, you know, <laughs> when we have calls internally, I like to say, you know, this is Hustle Fest 2023, right? It yeah. is. There's no shortcuts, right? It's all about hard work, and it is very much a a year of intense business development. So, um, I think I've personally had calls with several hundred developers. 
um, you know, we are have calls with, you know, probably well over 150 different buyers. Um, and it's just, it's just your, you know, and you know, we, we sometimes have, you know, sometimes I have 10 calls in a row. So there's no, there's no magic, right? I want to dig into that. Yeah. How, uh, so like often the lead generation, who do I get on the phone with is a problem for everyone. I'm curious, I mean, you've got a deep Rolodex, but how did you go out to market, so to speak? quite, you know, I'd say quietly, but go out to market and get people on your calendar. Was there anything that you leveraged from a technology perspective to just line up? And I'm, I'm thinking on behalf of all of the other entrepreneurs out there who are themselves trying to think about how to start their own business. And this, um, this iteration, this research phase, most entrepreneurs skip, right? Um, I'll, and I'll credit John Belazare, if you haven't listened to the Saluna episode, that folks should, uh, and this call, this conversation in particular, as two wonderful examples of Two thoughtful entrepreneurs thinking critically over a sprint of six or so weeks and getting and, and leveraging technology and network to deeply identify a need and to yep. know that they could solve it, which I, I just want to highlight that and circle it and underscore it because that for me is like a hallmark of a great entrepreneur. And uh, I actually want to know like a layer below that. How did you activate it? Yeah. So I think in one word, it's experimentation, right? Uh -huh. Like. As an entrepreneur, as a company, as a culture in our company, experimentation is really critical, right? You do stuff, you see what works, you focus in on that, you try something else, you see if it works, if it works, great, if it doesn't, you know, you drop it, right? There's no, there's no dogma in this company. There's no, you know, there's, it's all like, let's look at, let's look at the data and if we're getting good feedback, good inbounds, good whatever, Let's do more of that. If it's not, let's drop it and do something else. So in the research phase where we did that, you know, six weeks of customer research, that was a little, you know, we can't, we, we benefited from having experience, right? We could just call 30 of our friends who have been in this industry and ask them very specific esoteric questions, right? Like we didn't have to explain to them what tax equity was. They were already doing it. And we wanted to know like, Hey, here are the five questions. We ran a couple polls, right? And we just said, hey, listen, we're just... Where'd it, you run polls? Email. We just set it up. We, we said, like, we, we sent it to 50 people. And these are, again, people we know. They weren't cold. And we yeah. asked them three or four questions. Like, and just, hey, do us a favor. Like, yeah. fill out this poll. And, you know... Was the poll I, a Google form? Or was it just like a answer these questions and respond to the email? Yeah, it was some forum. I forget if it was Google okay. or something. It was, yeah, it yeah, was I mean, low tech, but it had yeah, low tech. An, what I what I want to highlight is like most folks go to like, oh, I'm going to go find like what email marketing service I want to use, and I'm going to figure out how to run a poll on LinkedIn. And folks like you, my friend Mike Silvestrini at Energia, will be like, no, screw that. We use Excel. We <laughs> use Microsoft Outlook. We use a Google form and low tech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like especially in the early days, like there was, there was no need for bells and whistles. Now I would caveat as we have a year of experience in, we need to, you know, we are growing up and we are keeping pace with, okay, we can't do everything manually. There are a lot of different tools at our disposal. And that's where, uh, that's where the experimentation phase came in. But, you know, it's still our, our customer set is not, we're not a B2C company, so it can't just be let's let's create an email and just send it to 
you know, 5,000 people and do that over and over. And if you get 10 people, that's a win. That's not applicable for our business, right? We are, you know, targeted B2B. We have specific buyers. We have specific sellers. Um, so, you know, our marketing and our outreach has to be very thoughtful. And um, again, just going back to the early days, a lot of it is high touch, right? I spend a lot of time with developers and with buyers and give them that, you know, give them that attention and that feedback and that education where I know this is not going to be scalable in a year or two, but like this is a brand new market, right? You can't expect to just use technology and have technology do that work for you. It is hard work. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications, as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. Hey friends, I have a proposition for you. Instead of freezing your tail off like I am here in North Carolina, why don't you jump on a plane, come to San Diego, January 17th to 19th, and hang out with us at InterSolar. InterSolar North America and Energy Storage North America, as you're probably aware, one of the premier U.S.-based trade show and conferences focused on solar energy storage and EV charging infrastructure. Suncast listeners can get free access to the expo hall by using the code SUNCAST at intersolar.us. That code will also get you 20% off your conference pass to learn, connect, and conduct business with the most innovative companies in the solar and energy storage business. Go to intersolar.us Use the code SUNCAST. And hey, don't forget to stick around all the way through Friday because yours truly may be on stage at the Solar Games. Come check it out. See you in San Diego. Here's what people miss too that I think that you well understand, certainly in a niche market like this. And I just want to enunciate this for listeners who are kind of not tracking and thinking, oh, but that's, you could still integrate like, Simple marketing tools. Yeah. Okay, great. The biggest marketing tool that Billy and Andy are executing on in the first six months is calling their prospective client and and refining the who are we message, refining that with credible counterparties. Because if you're the first one to call them, like we'll get into this in a minute, if you're the first one to call them and you are at the same time credible then you are the standard by which all others that call them afterwards get judged. And so it matters most how fast you get to them and talk to them than it matters how polished your marketing looks, right? I, I think that's right to a certain extent. So I, I definitely think you want to, you don't, you can't strive for perfection. The minute you strive for perfection, you're going to lose time. So it's a balance between 
hey, listen, B plus work is is great. Look, our website is probably pretty good, but not like awesome. But, but they're, right? they're not making decisions on your website. Let's be honest. Yes, but it can't be, you know. That's right. It can't be a C minus work, right? That's right. But, you know, the incremental work to get it from a B plus to an A minus is high. Mm-hmm. And we decide like, listen, that's not worth it. Where I think it matters is, yes, you want to be fast to market, but we differentiate ourselves that, listen, we have been doing this for years. Like we are subject matter experts, right? And we know what we're talking about. And these transactions, listen, yes, transferability on the face of it seems easy. I can buy and sell a credit. But when you get down to it, it's still a complicated transaction. Your first deal will be complicated. There are a lot of risks to unpack and to allocate. That's the whole point of project finance is, you know, risk allocation. And we've been doing that for years and we know kind of how to navigate the waters. And I think developers and buyers want a trusted partner, right? They can say, okay, somebody who can legitimately answer my questions as opposed to just, oh yeah, I found a credit that I want to buy and like, good luck. So I think that differentiation is very important in this early niche market. I want to learn a bit more about you and how you got into the energy sector. Um, But let's start first, like, where did you grow up? And talk to me about the nature of your family and kind of if there were early signs of entrepreneurship, because you're clearly entrepreneur oriented. And I'm wondering how, how far back that goes. Yeah, I don't think there's, you know, in my family, there weren't entrepreneurs per se. Uh, My parents... Uh, were entrepreneurial in the sense that, you know, they moved, there were immigrants from Korea that moved here for, you know, a better life and, you know, your your typical American dream. I think that's very entrepreneurial. Like, I can't imagine moving to a different country where, you know, I don't speak the language and like, okay, this is it, right? So, um, I think that part of it and the kind of uh, values that they instilled, I mean, they were both doctors. So, you know, I grew up privileged, um, but, you know, the the core values that they you know, focus on education, hard work, humility, frugality, um, you know, those stuck with me. And to this day, like those are, you know, even in our, in our culture at Reunion, we're, we're very much focused on doing things lean, doing things fast, being humble, um, you know, focusing on just hard work. I mean, that's a theme that, you know, that's come out a couple of times on this, on this discussion is hard work. So, yeah, I mean, and also like, I didn't want to become a doctor. My brother became a doctor and you know, just the thought of like, you know, my 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 father worked at the same hospital for I don't know forty years. That to me was like, uh, that was that to me is is scary. Yeah, exactly. Like this is where you're going to work for the next forty years. That to me was uh, not something I wanted. Yeah. Did you grow up in California? I grew up in Maryland, right outside of DC. How about that? And was it coincidental, like you're in Maryland, right outside of DC, that you met Jigger and the team? And no. Joined? I went to business school and I went to business school in 2004. I had done investment banking, oil and gas investment banking out of, out of college. And I did that because, hey, listen, I was following the herd. Everyone was doing banking and they just threw, threw me in the energy group. And um, I had no real inclination one way or the other, but I found energy fascinating. Um, but you know, I wanted something a little bit more high growth, a little bit more cutting edge. So I went back to business school and my goal was to do something um, in renewables. I wrote my essays, my entrance, uh, my applications in 2004 about being getting into wind or solar or something like that. Um, and then over the two years at business school, I really kind of did a deep dive. 
Um, and I met early on, I met Jigger and Claire and, and, uh, Brian and Claire Broido Johnson, for those who don't know. That's right. Um, forced to reckon with. And, <laughs> you know, they were up and running in Baltimore. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to move to Baltimore. Right. So I didn't consider it as a serious opportunity. <laughs> I love that. And no I think way. Jigger, you know, Claire said, come meet Brian, Brian Robertson, the late yeah. Brian Robertson. And, uh, so I went down there and like, that day, I was like, "That fine. I'll just. I'm. I'm going to do it, right?" And and so I, I said, "Listen, I'm going to drop everything, despite not wanting to move to Baltimore. I'll do it." Um, and it was the you know one of the best decisions I ever made. That's amazing. Um, recruited by the legends themselves. Um, <laughs> what um, what did you have to rewire about the way that you had been thinking? I mean, for those who aren't looking at your LinkedIn, you you just mentioned you grew up in a privileged family. You decided to sort of depart from that, but you went to Harvard. Harvard is um, a, the right path to get into investment banking, but there's a very specific path and a track and you decided to break that path, right? Uh, talk to me about the thought process that led you to decide renewable energy because that for me is a, like that's a, there's an awakening and that was an early awakening in a time where it wasn't obvious renewables was going anywhere. Yeah, I think I had the benefit you know, as much as I want to say, like, listen, I had foresight, I had risk appetite. I think I had the benefit of not having a tremendous amount of, um, you know, student debt. I didn't have, you know, things to worry about, like, hey, listen, I just have to, you know, get a job that's stable and pays money. Um, you know, I came from, you know, like I said, a privileged household. So I knew there was a safety net. Um, so I think that allowed me a lot more flexibility than other people to try something different. Now, when you go to Harvard, especially business school, right, there is an incredible herd mentality there, right? In the second year, everyone wants a private equity job. Everyone wants a hedge fund job. Uh, it's probably different now. Um, but to resist that temptation and to say, listen, I want to do something different, um, was hard because you are one of very few people who go down that path. I was able to stick with my guns. Um, and when I got hired from Sun Edison, it's a funny, funny story. I, you know, I got offered a, a salary that, you know, I made less than what I made going into to business, uh, business school. And I think I was probably the lowest 5% earners. And I wore that as kind of a badge of honor, right? Because I said, listen, I just don't care. I'm not even going to negotiate the, the salary. You know, I'm in it to get this amazing experience. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, I'm sure I can find another job or something else. I want to drill down on that for a minute because others might be saying, well, that's well and good for you. Uh, privileged from privileged family and, didn't, and had the safety net. Um, and I don't want to downplay that. Uh, I think that that actually doesn't. I mean, look, Mark Zuckerberg is is uh, is who he is today because he had a safety net because he came from a family that said, "Go try it, figure it out." But there's a de there's a decision tree. You have a great credential. You have great grooming. You have access to the you could you could have found out like who are the top developers, who's going to make it, and someone in the Harvard infrastructure and in your um, investment banking circles could have said, mm, "Here are the fifteen that we're following." So my question is, why Sun Edison? Like what compelled you given the opportunities around? And I ask for all those people who are themselves like evaluating 
at company XYZ right now and they and they don't have visibility into whether or not that company is going to succeed. And they're trying to like, are, are there, were there things that were telltale signs that you were like, okay, I'm going to follow this person. I'm going to follow this idea. Could you unpack that? Yeah, it's very easy. I, I was like, there's no way I'm going to work at Sun Edison. And then I flew down there. Uh, I agreed to, to meet with Brian Robertson, who was the head. And within three hours, I was like, I'm sold. This guy is awesome. Um, you know, he is, he's somebody I want to align with. And, you know, Jigger's great. Claire was great. They had vision, but Brian had kind of, he, he was, you know, the, the right balance between vision and execution. I was like, dude, this is the guy I want to work for. And, and that was it. I mean, just one, one meeting with him, um, you know, and, and, you know, the rest is history, right? I think that there's a ton of, and, you know, in the first, in the first part of the interview, you said, um, you don't want to look back on the past. And as a business principle, that's a great one. But in an interview scenario here, as we discuss kind of what, what informs how you make decisions today, it's really, it's really key to better understand what you've been through. I want people to understand why when you spent four to six weeks on something that would have taken most mere mortals six months to address, you are able to get answers and, and form a business around it and, and how that pattern matching is important. Kind of take me from Sun Edison, uh, take the time that you need and skip over what you want to skip over, but walk me from, uh, from Sun Edison through the early milestones that, that cemented the, I mean, you and I talked about the fact that like Sun Edison for you and many others is the, it's the, it is the cornerstone of your career. And I don't want to glorify Sun Edison in this. I actually want to just talk through what skills you acquired, what work you did that you've built on, um, through different, uh, through different iterations, uh, in the remainder of what has become an illustrious career, if I might say so. So you went from Sun Edison, you started Bright, Bright Plain, um, you started Eagle Solar Group, and so on and so forth, leading up to reunion. Could you walk me down that path in as succinct a way as possible? Yeah, sure. Um, so I spent five years at Sun Edison. Uh, we did a lot of the early solar project finance and tax equity deals. So I think I did the first solar tax equity deals with a lot of the guys who are you know who dominate the market now, like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, and um, and you know that was a fascinating experience. You learn a lot. Um, you know, in the end, it was about the relationships that I met made there. I think for me, the experience of Sun Edison was less about learning the nuts and bolts of financing and solar, but more like it was an incredible experience because somehow the company was able to attract amazing talent despite all of its issues, right? And I was kind of in the first incarnation of Sun Edison. There was a whole nother one after I left that you know, went up and down. So the first incarnation, it was still like amazing set of talent. Um, a lot of turbulence. We had a couple near death experiences still, but like just kind of being in the trenches with people that like are, are awesome. And, you know, I, I said to you previously, like every, uh, every career, uh, every career opportunity I've had since then is a direct result of a relationship I made at Sun Edison. So now, I want to pause there for a second. And it all comes back to you making the decision to follow a person, yes. not a business. That's right. That's right. It, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I can't unpack that. I just, it just, <laughs> that's the way I decided. I, you know, it could have ended I think it, very no, I think much I, differently, I wanna, but I want to highlight that for anybody here who's questioning 
their own motives, right? Like I've said this, I'll, 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 ex- I'll kind of connect this with another thought. People will say to me, but I want to go to grad school. And it's like, okay, great. What do you want to go to grad school for? But I want to go to grad school to be a, a luthier. Okay, cool. Luthier makes guitars. Um, you can actually get a graduate degree in that because people like Fender pay for it. Uh, all right. Where's the best luthier in the world? I don't know. Okay, answer that question. And then if they're teaching at a university, go there. If they're teaching in a practicum in in Oslo, go there, right? Because too many people try to go get prestige. They go get the Harvard degree instead of, I had a, I had a lady on, um, brilliant chemist uh, out of Brazil, chemical engineer, and she found the best program specifically in the United States for what she wanted to study. And she went to study under the scientist there that she wanted to learn from. And I was like, God, it's the first time I've actually met someone on the show who said, I chose my entire career path based on this person being my mentor. And if there's anything that I've tried to unpack for people listening to Suncast over the last 630 plus episodes is it is about the people that invest in you and the time that you invest with the relationships in this industry that is going to matter more than the bright ideas. Uh, execution matters. but you're you're just illustrating that the relationships, especially in a niche industry like we have been in for the last 20 years, is so critical. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I went to Harvard twice and I would say, you know, the Sun Edison network and the relationships are far more powerful than, you know, the ivory tower, uh, you know, badge of, uh, of, you know, prestige that Harvard brings, right? Whatever it is, right? Um, so I completely agree. It, it was all about uh, the the people that you met. Now, at some point, listen, you have to execute, right? You have to you have to innovate. And along the way, I think to answer your early question, I think what I realize is all these experiences give you good intuition. I think where mm, I excel yes. is I have good business intuition, and you know, not to say I've not make mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes and some of the ventures I've had haven't, you know, haven't done great. Right. But, um, having good intuition really helps. Um, and that's something I've always, you know, keep in the back of my mind. Am I, you know, if I can step back, am I making this decision? Is it a good one? What has informed it? Um, so being able to, that, and that to me is an art, right? That's something that comes over time. So you're using the word intuition and I don't think that's wrong. I often use the word pattern matching and you don't get it. And this was the best advice I ever got in my career. Um, God bless him. Guy at Marathon Capital took me to lunch and he said, you're wasting your time working in Latin America. Somebody 10 years younger than you in the United States is looking at 100 deals a day. You're at best looking at 100 deals a year. That person's going to be your boss. They're going to extract all your knowledge and they're going to grow much faster than you in the industry because velocity in this industry is what matters. And you aren't seeing enough deals. You need to get back to the United States. And what you guys at Sun Edison had that I observed from afar with the, with like awe as one of the channel partners that Charlie put in place and, and Corey was the deal flow. I would I would ping a deal over to Sun Ed and be like, hey, we want to like lock in this deal. And they'd be like, yeah, we've already seen that five times, right? <laughs> and it was just the ability to build the inbound of deal flow gave you all and the engineering and the, and the financial team such visibility of what's happening in the market. And I just tell people all the time, like get in an organization like that that gives you a 30,000 foot view with so much information inbound that you can develop intuition. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. 
So you left Sun Edison at a certain point. You decided, okay, had enough 2000, not 2011 timeframe and started your own company. Talk to me about Bright Plane and your first, uh, your first sort of step out of yeah, the Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was fascinating. We, we wanted to start um, something that was, you know, novel at the time, which is being a pure play solar IPP, right? Nobody had done that. Like now it's like, okay, well, everyone and their father has their, you know, a solar IPP. But like, I mean, this was kind of on the heels of the financial crisis. Capital was tight, but listen, these projects were good projects. And if you can align with investors um, that kind of shared your view, like the risk return profile was really attractive. Um, and can you build a portfolio? Can you create, you know, some diversification? Um, and also I was itching to be an entrepreneur, right? I was, I had uh, put in my time at San Edison and seen a lot of ups and downs and I wanted to try my hand. Uh, so I partnered up with David Busby, who was one of the first investors in Sun Edison. Um, and we quickly built Brightplane. We found it's very hard to, I think we might've been a little bit more naive. Uh, it's, it's very hard to raise money if you haven't you know, managed money previously. Yeah. So in the end, we ended up uh, partnering with D.E. Shaw. Um, their team was starting to look at solar. They didn't really have uh, a lot of solar experience. And, um, you know, we ended up uh, in our partnership with them. We, and we collaborated for the next, I don't know, six years on almost all of their solar projects. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, did a lot of M&A, did a lot of financing. That was a formative period in, in, in so far as lots of transactions. And that's where, you know, if, you know, if anyone's listening who wants to get into, uh, you know, a transactional role, to your point, find the companies that are doing deals. You will learn a ton more about deals actually doing them versus thinking about them or talking about them. That's the best way to learn is actually getting things done. How many deals do you think today a seasoned developer like that, an IPP, is their their analyst team is is evaluating on a daily or weekly basis? Oh, many. I mean, there are there well, are give a perspective. Shows. Like if somebody's trying to interview and the, and they want to ask a smart question, it would be on average how many deals are you evaluating in a week, and what what would that look like if it's a reputable company? If you're an IPP, like mm -hmm. a large IPP, I don't know, maybe. Uh, you're probably looking at five to 10 a week. Yeah, okay. Um, and th there's a ma massive funnel to these, right? Mm -hmm. you, you might end up with, you know, 10 closed deals a year. Yeah. But that means you start looking at 1,000 or right. 1,500. You like half of those. You realize the developer wants something different for another three quarters of them. So the, the funnel quickly goes down to where... Um, executed transactions is you know yeah. maybe one percent i mean mm -hmm. that's probably a good hit rate right yeah um so i i think that's you know i haven't really done the math there but that seems about right yeah so bright plane and de was a transformative uh sort of second phase of your career could you talk to me about the we, we're all in solar coaster the valleys between now between then and now that have been in, informative of how you grew as an entrepreneur and how you've seen the industry move. Yeah, I think in the late 2010s, um, what was happening was there was a flood of capital, right? Just a massive amount of capital where um, things got a little nutty, right? You were paying way too much for assets. We actually spun out a development company 
called Eagle Solar Group. That was a joint venture with DE Shaw, thinking that, listen, maybe development would be easier than late-stage development acquisition and financing. And the quick answer was no. You know, people were bidding PPAs to a point where I think we, we used to say, like, hey, when you win an RFP, you're not sure if you won or you actually lost, right? Because the minute you sign the PPA, you have to put up security. That's real money. And in today's economics, you're losing, right? The, you're underwater and you have to pray and hope that module prices come down and all these exogenous factors, which you have no control over. That's when I was like, okay, this is a little crazy. Like my, again, my business intuition is saying like, I have limited control over what happens. And like, it's, it's more about luck. It's more about module pricing, which again, I have no real edge. Like, I, I just don't know. So frankly, it was, personally, I was getting a little burnt out. I've been kind of doing the same thing in one, uh, in one form or another for many years. So kind of around COVID, I started thinking about what's next. Um, I want to find something a little more cutting edge, uh, a little bit more novel and, um, that's when, uh, you know, one of my old colleagues at Sun Edison called me and, um, invited me to join a, uh, renewable water company called Source Global. Oh, you were at Source? Um, I was, oh, right I was on. there for a year and a half. Okay. Um, wow. and, uh, I was, I was hired to help them with project financing. Um, and, and I think, you know, to, to be clear, I was hired too early, right? Yeah. There were mm-hmm. not enough large scale. They they were hoping to ramp their large scale projects, but um, there was there was a time it, they they just weren't ready. They didn't have enough pipeline for larger projects. Their large projects were not project financeable in the conventional sense of the word. So that's when um, that's when I teamed up with Andy to to start Reunion. Well, great way to tee up a question that I asked you a little earlier and that uh, is in sort of back of my mind. You know. Using the term platform for this early stage of a sort of business model is something that intrigues me. I am on the board of a platform company. I have been watching the SaaS industry uh, take over sort of different sectors of solar. And I'm curious about the tech-enabled finance solutions. Um, But, you know, today, it seems like a lot of what is happening right now, and I don't think Reunion is vastly different from this in the current iteration is, like I said before, glorified tax equity consulting. So help me unpack the, the evolution from here and why it's not that. But there, but there, are some, there are some realities and constraints that you have in terms of go-to-market. Can you talk a bit about that from a business model perspective? It's a great question and very insightful one. And one that we've thought a lot about because in this early market, it is a bit of consulting. It is a bit of broker. Uh, we are doing things that cannot scale, right? We are spending a lot of time on our early transactions, right? Handholding the deal. But that is a requirement, right? That there is an app. You cannot just flip a switch and have a cool you know, software product and expect people to click on the button. That's just unrealistic. And we can have a whole side conversation on one that's unrealistic, but like these are real transactions that have complexity and depth and need a lot of education. So for sure, we are in a brokerish world. 
the art is scaling out of that, right? And I think that is something where we don't want to become glorified brokers. We don't want to become glorified consultants. And again, I think the intuition that you know I've built over the years suggests that, yes, you can actually create. Transferability gives you a paradigm where you can go from a consulting world to one that is much more scalable, much more streamlined, and much more innovative. And again, I don't want to give away all of what we're thinking, but we definitely want to become more of a clearinghouse, right? More of a marketplace where people come to transact and get away from just your simple bilateral transaction, right? Today, our deals, all deals right now are bilateral. You have a buyer, you have a seller, you negotiate a contract, you do due diligence. We think there's a world where you can innovate around that and create structures where you move away from that construct. And that is really one of the pillars that we're trying to build. And, and that's uh, very exciting because uh, the architecture is much wider. Uh, the opportunity set is much wider. And ultimately, the way we provide value to our participants are, one, it's much more efficient, so sellers get a better price, and buyers are able to reduce their risk and, and mitigate that risk in a more thoughtful way as opposed to just you know your typical due diligence, indemnities, and tax credit insurance. Let's go into sort of TAM. And I want to do that through um, the lens. And I really want folks to go read this article, the early, uh, the early transferability market that Dave Reister wrote. It's it's fantastic. The segment on competitive landscape it alone is worth the is worth the price of the price of entry here. Um, uh, just skip down to that if you want to skip everything else because uh, we'll talk about Tam here. But I love how he sort of categorizes, and I don't think uh, I, I haven't seen anybody do it this well. The the current marketplace for this, if, if we want to use that in quotes, is incumbent tax investors, syndicators, existing SaaS, quote, platforms, and then in quotes, again, from industry, you and I, startups, and then fintech startups. And he talks about the advantage and disadvantage of both. So what I want you to talk about is there is a sort of market maker play, as he mentions, you and I've talked about, that necessitates um, sort of credible early wins ahead of software and tech stack. What's the TAM for something like this? Because you, he says it's like somewhere in the 50 billion range, if you believe Cone Resnick, and you say, mm, well, I don't know if, if we're really thinking about this, right? Because it's, it's much, much larger than that. Can you talk about the nature of the network effect and market maker in this early stage and also what the, what the goal line really could look like? Everyone talks about tax equity as an 18 to $20 billion market. That's generally static. It might go up a little bit, but for a lot of reasons, which we've written about, go on our website, that is going to be fairly stable. Mm -hmm. We are just seeing so many new credits, right? Everyone, I think, just looks back and says, okay, well, going from 18 to 20, maybe you know that'll double. But that's just like solar, wind, storage. Um, but there are other technologies that and credits that are really going to shift the supply uh, the supply dynamic. One, offshore wind, right? We've talked to some developers that, you know, hey, in 2025, 2026, we're gonna have like three billion dollars of credits from offshore wind or loan, right? We have ten billion dollars of 30x. We have 45x manufacturing credits, which is massive. We, we who who knows? Every, every 
every once uh, manufacturing becomes more onshore, this is going to get big. And then you have kind of the moonshots of carbon capture, hydrogen. We talked a little bit about nuclear in terms of this is one one area where the IRA is incentivizing existing nuclear power plants not to be decommissioned. So they're giving a PTC to existing nuclear power plants. So in that context, all of these different credits, they're all generating credits. They're all looking for the same tax liability dollars. So there, if we are, fo- if to my point about bilateral transactions, if all of these had to go to bilateral transactions, go the route of traditional, hey, I hire a tax equity consultant or a broker or whatever, we're never going to get the job done, right? There are just way too many credits. There are like, if you think about, even if you say a hundred billion dollars of credits that are going to be generated, which I don't think is who, who, who the hell knows, mm-hmm. but I don't think is out of this world, yeah. out, out of question, that represents almost 20% of all corporate taxes paid or will be paid in, you know, in uh, 2030. Mm, wow. So it's a staggering number. When you think about like, there's, there could be a world where to get all of this stuff build, built, one in five corporate dollars needs to buy this tax credit. Listen, there is, it may not be us, I hope it's us, but there will absolutely be platforms that are scalable that solve this problem, right? It, it is a necessity as opposed to a nice to have. Now, we expire to be that, and we do think there is a network effect, right? As a buyer, you want to go to the platform that has the most sellers. As a seller, you want to go to the platform that has the most buyers. So that is what we're building, right? Is We do think there, there could be one or two. There is a, a winner-takes-most dynamic here. And so that's why we're rushing and, and, and moving with high velocity. So yes, I mean, you could make a nice living, right, if you wanted to be a uh, Hey, like I have a little small consultancy and I do, you know, my 10, 10, 10 uh, deals a year, mm-hmm. you know, in maybe a previous life or, you know, you know, 10 years ago, that could have been interesting to me yeah. for, yeah, I'm in my mid forties. Like for me, this is like, this is my capstone. Mm-hmm. I have to make this work and I want it to be big and I want it to be scalable. I want to make a, a big impact. Um, and so that's at, at a high, high, you know, at broad strokes, kind of how we're looking at this opportunity. We are realistic where we are as an industry, which mm-hmm. is early. And we had we are hoping that the market develops faster, mm-hmm. but it's all contingent on the buyers, right? Tax credit buyers. And these are big corporate treasurers, tax directors, CFOs, and by nature they are conservative. So and you know, guidance came out two months ago. So do we wish things are moving faster? Yeah. But I mean, we also have to be realistic that one, um, we are laying the foundation and two, we are playing the long game, right? This is Mm -hmm. not just a 10 year credit, right? Right. In some ways it could be a 30 year, uh, credit opportunity given kind of the way the IR, our IRA works. Um, so we think this is the long game and while we are trying to move with velocity, um, you also have to be patient. And I think that's something that we have to constantly remind ourselves. I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but... I think it is. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. So um, what, I, what I've gathered in the conversation, um, you know, it's contingent on 
the buyer universe, as I've heard you call it before, they need to feel like they know the partners and that the partners are um, doing transactions are structured properly, which is risk mitigation at its core. And then people need to look at this as a long t- as long-term play, 30 years, and it's a patient game. Um, and it's one where if you move quickly, you can be a market maker and winner takes most kind of scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that, you know, there's just a, a certain um, once you get your first deal done, there's a high learning curve, right? And as opposed to a tax equity deal, which is everyone's different, every single deal is different and there's nuances to a lot of them. You know, once you get your first deals done as a buyer or a seller, then the learning you're you're high up on the learning curve. And that's where the scale of you so the the need for high touch point consulting, as you say goes down over time because you have that muscle memory and the deal structure shouldn't change that much. So that's where, you know, we're trying to move the industry, get some get some early transactional experience as an industry. From there, the next 12 months will be about scaling, getting the flywheel going, innovating, creating ancillary products. And then the third iteration is like, you know, full, you know, you know, blast off and let, let's move a million miles an hour. Well, I'll be watching with bated breath, Billy, as you and Andy and Joe and the Segway team as well uh, lift this thing into the stratosphere. Uh, if folks are so inclined, they want to reach out, want to learn more, where would you direct them? Yeah, absolutely. Follow us on LinkedIn. We post a lot of content there. We post a lot of content on our website. And we are trying to be thought leaders and we are trying to put out um, not just kind of your boilerplate summaries of that everyone else has regurgitated, but we are trying to be insightful as and and challenge some of the assumptions that everyone seems to have. Uh, and then just shoot us an email, right? Um, shoot me an email. Uh, shoot, you know, we have a, a intake form on on our uh, website. We read all our all of the uh, responses, so uh, we're we're always happy to engage. And the website is reunionenfra, I-N-F-R-A dot com. Billy's email? Billy at reunioninfra.com. Pretty easy. Billy, if we're sitting at, uh, at year 2030, looking back over the, over the next six years, what did we get right that, uh, that proved that you and Andy were right? Yeah, I think um, if we make this market liquid, if we enable all the different technologies um, that are the IRA and other energy policy goals um, go out to uh, support, I think we'll, I, I think that'll be a massive success, right? Yeah. And not all the, some of the technologies and some of the initiatives will, you know, be more successful than others. That's not our goal is to pick winners or the losers. It's really to enable whatever energy transition policies that, mm-hmm we as a country have decided to, uh, to focus on. Billy Lee is co-founder of Reunion Infrastructure. You can find him at reunioninfra.com and on LinkedIn as well. We'll link in our show notes at mysuncast.com along with all of the wonderful research that helped inform my ability to keep up with this guy in the conversation or at least toss out a couple of good questions. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of a busy schedule, Billy, to contribute. Thanks very much, Nico. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. Well, there you have it. If you didn't know, now you know. Got no excuse for answers about what is this tax credit transferability and who can I turn to as a credible resource. Thank you so much. 
to Joe Song and the Segway team once again. And thank you, Billy, for the time you've invested here in leveling up our Solo Warrior tribe. If you have learned something insightful from this conversation, well, the way you can pay it forward is by, by thanking Billy on the LinkedIn post that we've created or also sharing this episode or our LinkedIn post with your community and helping us expand the knowledge and helping others grow as you are in their clean energy journey. Over at mysuncast.com, I've captured most, if not all, of the links that I pulled up uh, through this interview as well as in my research to better understand what the heck is it that Joe and Billy are so excited about, that Billy and Andy are building a process and software and a team around. And you can find that at mysuncast.com by clicking on the episode notes page. If you can't find it, you can also scroll all the way to the bottom, click on the search box and search Billy Lee. You'll find his episode along with all the show notes for that episode and more. You can do that for each and every episode that we've had and more than 625 founder stories and clean energy advice from the leaders, the founders, the OGs in the industry, those on the front lines fighting the good fight in the energy transition. And if there's another thing that you could do first, it'd be rating the show after you've subscribed. If you've gotten this far and you really got a lot of value out of it, the easiest, simplest thing is just click on the subscribe button, click the five-star button in, in Spotify, uh, five-star review in in Apple Podcasts, and leave us a quick note on why this has been valuable to you so that others in their own podcast platforms can see what Suncast is all about and learn as you have. The easiest way to do that if you're outside of one of those ecosystems is going to rate this podcast.com forward slash Suncast. It's about three minutes and I'm forever grateful for you considering it. Finally, but certainly not last, thanks to our sponsors who help make this show free to you and only cost your time and attention. They invest so that you can grow and learn with us here on Suncast. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.